Hey, good morning. How are you? Welcome to Kesset on this fine sunny day. If you are brand new, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to be sharing with you today. Uh, we are closing out our Blacksmith Dog series. The series is based on the quote that you just saw. And it's, it's kind of, it, we tell the story throughout this four weeks that we've been teaching of uh, Charles Spurgeon, who had quite a movement that was happening uh, within his church and how he started to realize that the members of the church were just getting really used to God's presence and power. And as he was walking around his city, he saw a dog that was raised in a blacksmith shop beneath the forge, beneath the sparks and the, and the anvil and the clanging and the banging and all the sound. And he was just perfectly asleep in the midst of all that powerful creation. And he, so he told his church, you are like this, this dog that sleeps beneath the anvil and we need to awaken to all the things that God wants to do in our lives and be in awe of it. And so the series turned into a four week talk on apathy, which thank God it's only four weeks because I am tired of talking about all the stuff nobody wants to talk about. Uh, and and uh, we were pretty strategic with it in that we, we wanted to kind of take apart some of the Kessid specifically service experiences to, to remind us that it is God's power that we serve, not not uh, clever creativity or eloquent speech or anything like that. And so we sat the worship team down and we, we pulled off the drum cage and we, we also added other voices to, uh, to the messages. So we had, I opened the series and then we had two guest speakers in a row and now I'm closing it. And each speaker spoke with a different cadence and kind of from a different perspective and different angle. And I just want to report back that each speaker, I started it, so I'm part of this, frustrated an entirely different group of people. Each speaker like bothered a different group of people. I bothered my usual group, which is the traditionalists. So I, all my traditional Christian friends and, and all the guests that come and they're just like, he just doesn't really seem like a pastor. That's who I bother, I know it. Then Lindsay got on there, right? And Lindsay's a, Lindsay's a, a, a moody Bible educated, uh, just, just brilliant person. And she just like, like spoke straight Bible and like, like made statements. And people were like a whole other group, not my curious group, but, or I'm sorry, not my traditional group, but all my curious and gray and sort of the people who love to ponder were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't just make statements like that at church. It frustrated those people. Then Kip, the psychologist last week, just very like endearing, very invite. He like invited everybody in with this beautiful resonance of his voice and then just pushed us all off the stage. <laughs> People fell to the ground like, I hate you. I got tons of emails about everybody, all from different groups. And so I, that was the point, by the way. We are a multitude of perspectives and worldviews and, and, and even some cultures and subcultures. And this place is supposed to constantly challenge us to think beyond what we think we know, especially in the areas of our lives that were apathetic. The areas that we really don't care to talk about because they don't really hurt us that much. We're just sleeping beneath the ways that God is moving. And frankly, in a lot of spaces, this is one of those great sleeping, slumbering beasts. This room, this church. And our hope was to wake it up a little bit. As a matter of fact, I think that worship that we had when Dave pulled back and the crowd just took over, that was the hope of the entire series was to make this about you and your God and your voice and about what he wants to do in your life. So I don't know what you came for today, but I know this, that, that the God that I serve, the God that, that I believe is real beyond anything else in this world, he wants to know you, he wants to meet you in the midst of your struggle. And my hope today is that, uh, that you square up with him, that you be honest with where you're at and how you feel, that you don't, you don't just roll over, you be authentic, you be your fully human self, but you be real about it. And that's what this message is about as we close out this series. Amen? Yeah, about half of you said amen. The other half's like, all right, let's do this thing. I didn't know we weren't wearing gloves today. All right, that's fine. That's fine. All right, we're going to start off by talking about when the church was founded. So Jesus Christ uh, brought together these, these men, these 12 men, and then a whole bunch of other followers, including very powerful women. He taught them, he, he discipled them, and then he was arrested and crucified, and they were basically thrown to the wolves. For three days, they were hiding and, and, and basically trying to recover from this movement they thought they were all a part of, but that Jesus had apparently abandoned them within. Then suddenly, three days later, as we know, Jesus is resurrected, and he comes back, and he starts having very strategic meetings. 
He has first meetings with the, 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 the women at the, at the uh, tomb and, and they hear the angels and they hear that Jesus is coming back. And then the men that are on the road to Emmaus and they turn around and they come back. And then he appears to the disciples. Now there's 10 disciples at this point, 11, but as we're gonna find out, one of them's not there and Judas is no longer with them because of what he has done. He is no longer part of this group. So you have these 11 disciples hiding in a room and basically having to face everything the human condition doesn't wanna face. What do I believe? Why do I believe it? And what am I gonna do now? And they're sitting and they're, they're talking and then all of a sudden it says that Jesus appears to them. But John, John recounts this holistic version of this appearance. And he starts off by citing something very important. And this is what we're going to jump off and into today. John chapter 20, verse 24 says, Now Thomas, who was one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now I don't know if you know anything about Jesus, but he is God in the flesh. Therefore his timing is perfect. He doesn't just show up and be like, I'm back. Where's Thomas? Like, that's not how he works. So he shows up and Thomas is not there. Now, I think there's a reason Thomas is not there. And I think we're supposed to ponder that a little bit. We're supposed to be curious about that. Why would Jesus show up and Thomas not be there? My guess is because Thomas refused to hide at this point. Thomas was done. Thomas was in this place that a lot of us are in areas of our lives that he was disturbed. He had sacrificed enough. Jesus had clearly let him down. And so Thomas wasn't going in that upper room anymore. So he was out maybe back with his family. Maybe he was out numbing his pain in a way that we don't know. But whatever happens, there were 10 of them and one was missing. And Jesus showed up to the 10 and John notes, but no Thomas here. This is the space that I think a lot of us are in when it comes to our faith, when it comes to the, even if there is a God. We say around here a lot that Kesed is a, a, a place for spiritually curious people. That's because we have people show up who are like, I like these people and I like you, but I don't like this uh, whole idea that there's a God. Good, welcome. That's fine. We'll take you. Thomas is in that space. He is utterly disturbed by what has happened. And this is why it's important because I think perhaps Thomas is the only disciple at this time not experiencing a deep sense of fear and apathy. As a matter of fact, we're closing this series and this talk, not with a talk for people who are apathetic toward God. We're actually gonna close this talk for those of you who openly oppose him. Now you might think right away, whew, this talk's not for me then because I am a Christ follower through and through. And I would say, get your hand off your chest and stop being so condescending. I would say instead that actually every person in this room has areas in their life that they openly oppose God. They're the areas that you box in and go, God, you can have this, you can have that. But this right here, this is mine. This is where my identity sits. This is where my self-esteem sits. This is where my value sits. This, I don't know, your, I don't know where yours is. I'm just throwing stuff out. But this is mine you can have everything else. That's for the Christians. For the rest of you, the mystics and the ones who are just here because a pretty girl invited you and you just thought you'd show up because, you know, who knows? Those people, you openly oppose God all the time. Just own that stuff. Like, own your space, bro. Like, you're just in it for you and only you, and that's fine. But I have a sermon for you that I think the God I serve through the presence of him, we call that the Holy Spirit, is gonna, well, shake you up a little bit. But you got to first by, start by being honest, whether you're Christian or not, that there are areas in your lives that you openly oppose God. And I think this is a beautiful example through Thomas of one. Thomas is willing to stand his ground. This is what it says in the very next verse. So the other disciples told him once they met Jesus, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is a really important passage for us to understand that whenever the Bible is describing a situation, please don't just think that just the words on the page are the only like parentheticals that actually the story happens within. Like Thomas finally shows up after not hiding and to drop off some bread or some groceries or to help out or to check in or to just remind them all that they're a bunch of losers for believing in this God who died, you know, three days ago. That's the kind of punk I would be. <laughs> 
He shows up and it says the disciples decide to tell him about this Jesus they saw. And then all we'd have is his initial response. Please don't think it was that cold and that simple. And that he rolled in and Peter said, hey, by the way, Thomas, Jesus is back. We saw him. And he was like, unless I see the piercings of his neck. I don't think so. I think instead there was massive amounts of debate and turmoil. It's just condensed for us. But you're supposed to know that if, if, if God picked 10 people to be the communicators of his gospel and one of them didn't show up when Jesus was there, then that's a nine on one of anointed communicators convincing the other brother that Jesus is back. Think about how bad this boy is standing nine on one, right? Squaring up with all of them, squaring up with all of them and committing to the fact that unless he touches Jesus, unless he sees Jesus, he wants nothing to do with him. This would have been some blow, blow conversations. There might've been some your mom stuff in here. I'm just saying, you don't know. But what we know, <laughs> I knew I could work that into a sermon one day. Who challenged me to do that? <laughs> There's your mom joke. I think you owe me a pizza or something, whoever that was. I don't remember, but that was a couple months ago. But that, I, I believe that. I believe that. I believe that Thomas squared up in this place because these people were sold out and they owned their space. They had the believers and then they had Thomas and they fought it out. They said, he's back, bro. And he said, nah. And as a matter of fact, he's not so back that unless I touch those marks, I ain't believing. This is what is so powerful about this space that Thomas is in because he is proclaiming what he is and what it will take for him to believe that Jesus is who he said he would be. So guess what? That's what you should do as well. And that's some scary stuff. You should just say it. This is what I need. This is where I'm at. This is how I think God has let me down. This is how the church has hurt me. This is what I'm dealing with today. Just be honest and see what Jesus wants to do with it. Boldly proclaim what it is and where it is you are. Now you might think this was a momentary argument that Thomas sat in. Apparently not, because the very next verse says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. <laughs> this dude held out for eight days. Eight days with the greatest communicators perhaps the world has ever known, trained by Jesus. And he's like, not happening. Lest I touch him. Lest I touch him, every argument, lest I touch him, not happening. Every meal, Thomas, I cannot believe you. I, I'm literally the rock that Jesus, I'm Peter. I'm telling you, he's real. <laughs> that's what I would have done. Thomas is a punk like me, so that's how I read it. But you know what? Jesus knows how to deal with punks like me and you. And so it says eight days later, they're all together again, probably arguing, probably this massive argument where finally Thomas is standing in the middle of the room like we get, right? He's getting bigger and he's getting louder and he's facing off with everybody else in the room. And then all of a sudden it says, although the doors were locked, it's an important note, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, it doesn't say what position or posture or place they were at. It doesn't say if they were laying at a table, which means we can pick anything we want to understand and read the context. For me, just my family, my situation, I think Thomas was squared up with everybody in the room and Jesus showed up right behind his back. And, and probably at a point where he was being really condescending, like, oh yeah, you think Jesus is real? I saw him on the cross. I saw him die. He died three days ago. You guys are still carrying on this movement. What a poor investment. Let's just go back to our families. What are you all looking at? And behind them, everybody's like, oh. <laughs> this is just me. And I think Jesus is, you know, standing like where my chair is. And Thomas knows, like, Oh no. And then you just hear Jesus, peace be with you. And that's when all the disciples were like, mm-hmm, yeah, he needs some peace. I'll give him some peace, yeah. So Thomas turns around and there's Jesus. There he is. I wanna say something to those of you in the room who Jesus has already showed up behind your locked doors and proclaimed peace on your life. I want you to notice that Thomas doesn't immediately follow his knees. He doesn't, he doesn't actually do anything other than just stare back at Jesus. And I'm just here to tell you, some of you, Jesus has already turned up in the locked, secretive, compartmentalized areas of your life. And he's speaking peace into it. He's speaking his presence into it. But just own your space, sister. It's not enough for you. Now, you said you want to see the marks. 
So Thomas turned around, just like I hope in the room right now, your soul is turning around to meet the living God who made you. Because Jesus has something to say. He turns his gaze upon Thomas, just like he's turning his gaze upon you, and then he just immediately calls out what Thomas needs. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus says, look closely at what I have been through for you. Look at how far I have gone for the love that I bring you into your locked away spaces. He says, recognize these old wounds that have now become marks of my presence. It's very important to recognize this the marks in this, in this translation that Jesus refers to it, that John refers to it, that the wounds have become marks. It's a powerful, powerful idea that the gospel is constantly trying to remind us of, that we are not to be Christians who have wounds that we hide or wounds that don't get healed. We are to be Christians that have wounds that become marks. And look what happens when Thomas sees the marks. He responds immediately, my Lord and my God. This is perhaps the clearest example of a human being receiving all they ultimately need, which is relationship with God restored. That's what every person here is ultimately thirsting for. That's why the Bible calls Christ living water. That's why he is the bread of life. It's because we are looking for something that, that unlocks our secret spaces and allows us to be whole and not so compartmentalized where we're one person at work and you know you're your best person right now. I mean, you're at church. But after church, or when you're on the road and somebody cuts you off or your wife says something mean to you, amen, do I, husbands out there, do you understand what I'm saying right now? Yeah, I feel you. That's when the other parts of you that aren't locked away, that are locked away, that aren't given to Christ start to reveal themselves. But Thomas immediately falls to his needs. Thomas immediately proclaims, I know you and you know me. And look what it's proclaimed through. It's proclaimed through the marks that he sees him. The marks that he knows them. Jesus responds to this. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas saw the wounds that Christ had now, the, the wounds of Christ that had now become marks. These marks proved to him he was who he said he was. And so relationship was restored. It is in Jesus's marks that the identity of his sacrifice sits. Jesus then remarks that this offer of looking at the marks of Christ is for all who read the passage and hear of his message like you are today. This is the gospel offer at its core that through Christ we can have restored relationship with God. And it all happens through the marks. This is why, this is why Christians, it's so important for us to understand that we have wounds that we all carry in this life, but that through relationship with God, those wounds become marks that then if we're not careful, we try to hide away unlike Jesus. We don't want anybody to see the, the marriage that didn't work. We don't want anybody to know about the wayward child that we don't have relationship with. We don't want anybody to know about the deceptive business practices. We don't want anybody to know about all that we do online. We don't know anybody to know about the rage inside that consumes us or the workaholic behaviors or the disobedience or the unkindness or the I could go on and on and on. Nobody wants to know that part of themselves and share it with anybody else. And so they seep and they get infected. And they push through the locks and the doors and the hinges and they move into other areas of our life until suddenly we are struggling just to keep our heads above water at all. This is why restoration is so important. This is why what Thomas wanted is so good. He wanted to see the marks of Christ. See, Jesus' whole thing is that he's fully human like us, that he experienced life like us. So I think a lot of people forget that Jesus came back and let the scars remain, but he didn't have to. He could have come back and been like, not a scratch. But instead he leaves all the marks. And it's this symbol that has been passed down for generation after generation after generation of Christians who walk into relationship with Jesus wounded, who then receive his healing, restorative love, who then have marks that are supposed to cause them to be like Jesus in their world, the hands and feet of him. Hands and feet, by the way, the Bible says, that are marked 
by wounds that are restored through love. And yet what happens is we as Christians go to churches, we figure out how to heal our wounds, we have the marks, but we hide them. And then we pretend like we don't have them. And then we suddenly put on our church gear and our church face and we go to church and try to pretend along with everybody else that Jesus has made everything okay in my life. Even though my wife fought like cats and dogs on the way here to church this morning. Instead, what we're supposed to do is expose our marks, is be honest about our marks and give glory to God that they are healed and being used for something more. We're supposed to be searching in our wounds in our marriages, in our stories for other people who've experienced what we've experienced and have who found healing. If you have a marriage that's hurting, you should find somebody who understands hurting marriage. If you run a business and you keep cutting corners, you should find somebody that can help you think right about that. If you, if you, if you, there are people, they're supposed to be people that have experienced woundings in their life that have turned into marks and they're supposed to be the people discipling and helping others, but there's not enough people willing to talk about their healed lives because they're too busy pretending they never had wounds in the first place. And the cycle continues and the church just keeps hurting people. What's funny is that we talk a lot about church hurt here at church and it frustrates a certain group of people, especially people who maybe grew up in a healthy church or a church that didn't have the kind of uh, story that many of us in this room had. I, for one, had a very unhealthy church experience when I went into full-time ministry the first time. As a matter of fact, you may or may not know that uh, when I left the church I was previously at, there's been tons of healing and, and good things happened since. But when I originally left, my wife and I, for about a year before we planted Kessid, there was nowhere it felt like that we could go in Clark County where somebody wouldn't get up in a restaurant and leave when we walked in. There were tons of lies, tons of... Of, of hurtful things said. Some of, it, some of it probably true, some of it very much so not true. And we just started to get pretty jaded about church as a whole because what's the point? And then God, because he does this, showed up and started gazing behind the locked doors of my story. And he asked me, to, you should plan a church that's different. And I was like, uh, no. Because I would rather go do something you know, with my life that, that like made money. Like, so I could like avoid this fishbowl of an existence that church often creates for people that start churches. And God was like, oh, is that, is that right? And we had this like condescending thing that God and I do back and forth. He's not really condescending because he's perfect, but I feel like he's condescending and he knows it. <laughs> he knows it. Eventually God and I had it out so much that I started to not be able to function well. And so I told my wife, I think I'm just gonna go for a drive. I think it was a Saturday. This is something I do every once in a while. So she's like, okay, okay. So I, I went for my drive and, and I, I drove east. And five hours later, my wife called me. She's like, where are you? And I said, well, I'm driving east. And she goes, well, sure. Cause if you would have driven west, you would have driven into the ocean, honey. So, um, and I was like, you know what? You're kind of mean to me sometimes. And, she, and it all started there. She said, Danny, where are you going? And I said, I don't know. And I just kept driving. I drove and drove and drove. I drove for three days straight. I slept every once in a while. This is an actual map of the path that I took that with me. I ended up somewhere in Iowa. There's nothing in Iowa, folks, by the way. Just me and the Holy Spirit. That's all that was there the whole time. And God started peeling back layers of my heart. He started peeling back spaces that he wanted to invade. He started asking questions about what a church could look like that was just honest about the, the ways that it doesn't work well and could trust that he could figure some of that out. And then eventually he began to bring healing to me. A few weeks back, we preached a verse, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We often think of this verse as calls to actively live like Jesus lived, to, as I said earlier, be his hands and feet to the world, to be more loving, to be more kind, to be more generous and gracious. But I believe this verse is also a call not just toward activation, not just toward serving and doing, but sometimes a call to just stand like Jesus stood, to be as Jesus was. 
In other words, as Christ followers, I'll put it on the screen, our job is to stand like Jesus with marks exposed, being honest about where the marks came from and the wounds they represent. If you put my map back up, I eventually went to a, uh, another place called Fargo. <laughs> um, also not much there. Kind people, at least they were to me while I stayed in the hotel and, and prayed and asked God what he wanted me to do and, and, and was honest with him about the fact that I don't know if I can do this without, like Thomas, being honest about all the things I'm disturbed by. And as he met my gaze and as he began to reveal, I think, more and more of what Kessid would be, I'll never forget at 1.40, I think it was, yep, 1.40 a.m. In the, in the morning, I journaled this passage in Fargo. I am truly beginning to realize that for me to change, to really transform and become something new and different, I must be pulled in so close and so tight that I can't help but get bound up in his often painful embrace, even if it means squeezing me till the breaking of my heart until all I feel is the pain of his perfect love pressing inward on my freshly shattered soul. This quote in Fargo was the moment that my church wounds were reweaved into his marks and the idea of Kesed was born. This is what we're still propagating here today. This idea that God wants to use your marks and the ways he's healed your wounds so that more and more people can experience him. But I'm not actually here to talk about the wounded people and I think you know exactly who you are. I'm here to talk about those of you in the room who have marks that can help other wounded people but you're not willing to share them. You're not willing. And I'm, I'm one of them. I, I've been unwilling many times. I mean, I had to drive like five days with the same pair of underwear. A huge sacrifice for the kingdom. I had one pair of clothes. It was, you know, some of you experienced miracles. I didn't. It was disgusting. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> if I would have had a better prayer life, it would have been like, and new underwear every morning, you know, just, but I didn't. I was angry and God was like, and this is what you smell and look like to me, right? And, and, and it was this beautiful sort of like restoration, but it took me five days to get to a place where God was like, look, I can use this if you'll give it to me. I can use this wound if you will give it to me. And I did. And we, along with many others, started this church that you are now being invited into yourself. But it, it's gotta be more than that. It has to be all of us being willing to receive the woundings, to sit under the gaze of Christ, to space off with whoever has a pulpit or a podcast or a book that tells us how it's supposed to be and say, no, God, here's what I need from you. You died three days ago. I saw him put the nails in your body. So if you want me, you're gonna have to show me. And Jesus shows up and I'm just here to tell you, he'll show up for you too. That's what this baptism is about. It's about people publicly proclaiming that they are accepting God, turning their wounds into marks. That's what this is. There's nothing magical about this water. It is an ancient tradition of people stepping in to a vulnerable place in front of a bunch of other people saying, I want, this is people's driving east, folks. And for some of you, you didn't even sign up on the list, but you know you're supposed to get in that water today. You know it's time for your wounds to be turned into marks. For others, you have the marks. You're ready to serve. You're ready to give. You're ready to be generous. You're ready to help. And it's time you roll up your sleeve and just show people what it is you got. A friend of mine the other day sat me down and as kind as she could, we were talking about church and life and Kesed and me and all the things. And she says, you know, I was at a gathering the other day and a pastor from up north asked me what church I was attending. I said, I was attending Kesed. And he goes, Kesed, is that the church with the pastor with all the tattoos? <laughs> she says, yes. And he goes, hmm, yeah. And guess what? These are my marks. They're all my stories. They're ways that I dealt with trauma that happened. Parts of me wished it would have been different. Parts of me don't but now I got them and I'm not wearing long sleeves for you, sorry. This is just who I am. And this is stuff that God's using and he wants to use yours. And it has nothing to do with, the, with anything other than just your heart and your willingness like Thomas to stand authentic with who and where you are. I was wrapping up this message on Wednesday before I preached it on Thursday and I had no ending, which I hate. I had no ending. I sat there for a half hour and I'm like, how am I gonna end this thing? I mean, I, I know baptism's coming, but, but how do I end it? And I got a text right when I was doing that. 
And it's from a friend who rarely texts me and he says, hey, uh, I just saw this and I thought it would be helpful to you. And I, I saw the text and I was like, okay, I'll open the link in a minute. Right now I'm working on the ending of my message. <laughs> Stop interrupting me with your encouraging text. Still no ending, another half hour. It's getting time for the deadline. We got a deadline around here. We got to make sure these things move on to the other campus and so forth. And I'm like, Lord, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And then the, the, I got a text. So I clicked on the link to the text and it was a, a poem. It was a poem written by Sir Francis Drake. And this is what it says. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little when we arrive safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. We have ceased to dream of eternity and in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, O Lord, to dare more boldly to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery and where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. My prayer for you is that you are disturbed in your deepest locked away places. And that because you are disturbed, you realize there's something there touching your heart. There's something there that has arrived. Jesus's presence is there and he is speaking into your life like he's still speaking into mine. Peace be with you. He's not here to tear you apart. He's here to bring healing and wholeness to your soul. But you have to turn and look into his gaze. You have to decide if your wounds can become marks for other people and yourself and for relationship with God to be restored. You're gonna see some people who make that choice. And I said it again, there's some of you in this room, you keep fighting with every baptism, you keep fighting. But I'll make one more call towards the end of this baptism, of the people who've signed up. And if you know you're supposed to get in that water, my hope is that you find the courage to step in to the peace that's waiting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for every person in this room for the way that, that you are disturbing them. I thank you, God, for the folks who are giving church another shot, giving you another shot, for those who thirst for something they just can't seem to quench in this world. I ask that right now in this place, they would recognize the sacredness of this time, that there would be a willingness to walk in, to wade in, to no longer hide in that upper room, but to stand look into the eyes of the one who made them and be authentic with how they feel. Disturb us, God, into relying on you, into experiencing your peace, your forgiveness, and your restoration. We just create so much more, God, in our lives that, that we think you cannot handle, and yet, Lord, we know, those of us who've allowed it, those of us who faced it, that you can carry all that we can bring. Disturb us, O oh Lord, as we come to you in relationship. In Jesus' name, amen. We've arrived. This is where I open my hands and completely let go. I am about to reveal more of what I am not so that you can receive more of what I am. It will be sobering, but liberating. There's a construct here, a shelter in place made by a frame of mind, a body of belief, a spirit of scarcity, a need for control. I am disrupting the illusion within the illusion by telling you, you are none of these things. I'd like to show you who you really are. But before I do, I want you to know that it feels risky. It feels like death, and it is. It's the death of your identity apart from me. I will go first, because you need to see it before you believe it. 
Will you trust me? Will you look at your life with me? Can you tell me honestly, what do you love? What do you worship? What do you adore? Where is your reverence? Bring the harvest of your religion to the table. Let's have a taste. Cut open the fruit of your way. Tell me, have you lived a life worth living? Endure the stripping with me, the undoing, the raw nakedness, the uncloaked being. You can face the illusion, and you can brave what appears a loss. I am right here, dosing grace, opening the lens by which we see. I know the way. Come, birth a new world with me.